This episode of Rude is recorded on the traditional territory of the Massachusetts people and is a place which has long served as a site of meeting and exchange among nations. What up? Rude is by and for young people who care about social justice and aren't afraid to make things uncomfortable. We're often called rude because we question the status quo and have conversations that make people with power squirm. So we decided to reclaim the word and start a podcast to share these conversations with a wider community of so-called troublemakers. 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 I'm Daniela. I'm a public health researcher and anti-racist queer activist. I'm Michael, a school leader, educator, and creative artist. I'm Emily, a columnist, anthropologist, and human rights activist. And this is Rude, a podcast where we push back. It's so good to be back with you two. Hello. Hi. How are you? Doing well. Excited to be here in Boston. Great. Good, (laughs) good. So I want to welcome our newest listeners. For those of you who are just joining us, if this is your first episode of Rude the Podcast, welcome. You have now joined the ranks of thousands of other listeners who have supported us throughout our journey. And it's thanks to you all that we were featured by the Huffington Post, Mm -hmm. CBC. We were even nominated for the Gala Dynasty in Quebec for the best podcast. And we were featured on Apple Podcasts. Yes, that was cool. For new and noteworthy podcasts. Mm -hmm. And the best part of all this is that we didn't even know what we were doing. (laughs) Yeah, I'd never listened to a podcast before I found myself in the middle of creating one. And now? And now I am an avid podcast listener, I am proud to say. And a creator. True. And now we're back with more thanks to the Digital Justice Lab in Toronto. Shout out Digital Justice Lab. Check them out. They're cool. We all met when we were living together in a house in Montreal. We were roommates. Mm. Yes, we were. Uh, And we survived it. (laughs) We still love each other, which is something that doesn't happen with all roommates. All 12 Um, of us. Yeah. So when we say we, we mean 12 people. That's important for people to understand. So there's three of us on the air. There were a couple more of those 12 that were involved uh, and are still involved in the podcast project. But there were actually 12 of us living together in a house. Now, when we were living in the house, one of the things that happened um, is that um, at some point, surveillance cameras were actually installed in the house. Yeah, these were smart surveillance cameras. So not just like the regular CCTV things. Mm -mm. Um, They could do a lot more than what regular surveillance cameras can do. Yeah, they have like facial recognition uh, functions. They pick up out audio, they they detect movement, uh, they sync with your phone so they know when you are and when you are not uh, in the house. So they do a lot of scary things. And discussing their installation uh, got all the 12 of us to have really important conversations about surveillance. For some of us, it was a first experience. For others, they had previous experience that were really not cool. And it got us thinking about why millennials in general are not really aware of how just like the omnipresence of technology is not necessarily a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so we learned a lot through that experience and really dug into what is going on. 
Um, and so have done a bit more digging and talked to some interesting people doing important work around this. Mm -hmm. So our goal is to share our learnings around what it means to engage critically with digital technologies in the 21st century. One of the things we hear a lot is, I don't have anything to hide. I don't have anything to hide. Who cares? It's sometimes hard to care because surveillance is everywhere, but we don't give a shit. We've just grown up with it being so normal. Right. Like people unlock their phones with their faces, <laughs> facial recognition. Or your fingerprint or yeah. anything like that. One of the things that I do is like whenever I download the app, I rarely bother to turn off the option for location. Mm -hmm. It's just like my app is tracking me all the time. And you do sometimes you really have the option to be like, no, don't track me. And most of us, I know I'm, alone, I'm not alone. Don't bother to just go in our settings and and just turn that off. Right. And it's not just location, right? It's all data all the time, whether it's by one of our apps or our phone or our credit card being used somewhere or otherwise. It's the same with terms and conditions as well that we have to sign up for every software and app. It's very much you accept to give or to sign your life away or you don't and then you fall off the face of the earth <laughs> and you don't exist digitally. Right. And that's the only option that we're given. And we feel like that's an option that's okay, that to be this black and white, and we don't question that. We've been made to believe that the price we have to pay is our data to be connected. So basically, privacy or... Don't participate. Don't participate in what, society? Right. <laughs> Digital society, online society. But that's just society in general more and more, so it's, it's really not a fair choice, right? No, not at all. And I think one of the reasons that people agree to this is because they think it's harmless. Mm. I have nothing to hide. <laughs> exactly. Once again. <laughs> and I think an example of this that I heard recently was about smart fridges and mm. the Internet of Things, where your home devices are collecting a lot of data about what you do. And so if you have beer and a lot of red meat in your fridge, for example, uh -oh. <laughs> versus having a smoothie or a salad... Um, that can be tracked and that can have unintended consequences because you think, oh, that's just what is in my fridge. But it could kind of allow insurance companies, if the fridge is collecting data, to modify your premiums based on what is being put in your body Wait, or at what? least what they think. Yeah. Seriously? Yeah. Fridge snitches. Snitching on you. That's so messed up. Just trying to have a drink here. <laughs> I sat down with Brenda McPhail, who is the Director of Privacy, Technology and Surveillance at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. I shared with her our concerns about surveillance and specifically what we experienced with the cameras in the house where we lived. We felt like we couldn't really talk to each other openly mm -hmm. and I wanted to know a bit more about that. That's actually one of the most fundamental fears um, of creating a surveillance state where people are constantly watched is that potential of knowing we're being watched to change our behavior. Mm. Privacy really is kind of a, a baseline right, a, a threshold right that allows us to exercise other rights. And one of those in particular would be around free expression. So when you describe feeling like you couldn't speak openly, that you had to be careful or second think what you might say for fear of being judged, for fear of it being recorded and not knowing what would happen mm -hmm. um, to those recordings or what impact saying something might have on you or your life. Um, that's exactly what we as privacy advocates fear if we start creating environments where surveillance is essentially ubiquitous. 
so then this I have nothing to hide thing really isn't what it's about because when we're living in this house we weren't doing anything wrong we didn't have anything to hide but we still had a sense of being watched being controlled it really isn't about like having secrets it's about being controlled um, and so it still started to impact regardless of secrets or not um, how we acted and how we interacted that's right yeah technology is really modifying how we behave in insidious ways what we say and what we don't and that's just for regular folks it gets even scarier for people who are politically engaged and or doing social justice activism that challenges the status quo i did ask her about that too here's brenda's answer what we found is that people said when they knew they were being watched. Um, it changed, first of all, the, the dynamics of the groups. So they got more afraid to let in new people because they didn't know if they were going to be, if there was a genuine person who wanted to help them or whether they were facing an infiltrator. So for activists who were sort of active, you know, out there on the streets, had a public profile, were very visibly engaged, um, some of them started getting visits from national security forces. Um, and at the point that CSIS started knocking at their door, they said they just weren't comfortable anymore going forward with their political work, even though they deeply believed in it and you know, felt that they were standing up for important values. Um, but they were afraid to go forward because of the effect that it was going to have on their parents, on their spouse, and particularly, potentially, on their children. So as, as young people started having kids, they started moving away from being politically active. And that's a huge loss um, in a democracy to any political movement if people start to be af too afraid to stand up for what they believe in because they're fearful for repercussions. So Emily and Daniela, you both have been frontline on some of the more notable activist movements as of late. What has all of this surveillance digital technology meant in your experiences? For me, it's made me quite wary of people who show up wanting to help, particularly white people mm. um, who want to show their allyship and help out. And Don't at me. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really hard to create change and get that mass buy-in if we're scared of each other. So you're talking uh, in the context of Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. yeah, Vancouver. It's interesting that you would be scared of like white people being infiltrated. In my experience of what I know of people infiltrated, sometimes they will just choose the black cop to do it, so mm -hmm. it's not necessarily about that, but I think it's um, when certain movements have been, have this experience of being infiltrated so often, historically, it becomes part of the culture to be suspicious of new people showing up. Yes. So you don't even need uh, actual co undercover cops for people to start behaving with the possibility that there might be. And so when you start thinking like that, it really makes us less effective uh, because we're suspicious. Um, we cannot build significant alliances and social relationship if we start from a place of suspiciousness, right? So so are you saying that whereas once there was this concern over newcomers and whether they were honestly there in support or 
whether they were there to be fridge snitches. Now <laughs> there is this concern um, of a more ubiquitous surveillance that comes in the form of digital tech. Uh, not necessarily. I'm like it could be about tech, it can be about anything. People don't need to even have a threat of surveillance. Just the reflexes that perhaps were created by surveillance mm-hmm. are just now just like part of the culture. We we have them. Um, we are suspicious of others just because we are. We don't necessarily know why we learned that behavior, uh, why it was at some point uh, a relevant behavior. It just became what it is. And when you do that, um, it creates uh, isolation. Uh, for activists but it also makes it a lot harder to mobilize if you're going to make like crazy background check on like every person that just shows up for your cause at some point it's going to start destructing social movements and so we need to be really really careful about mistrust Mm. and mistrust is definitely connected to surveillance and what's happening absolutely Have either of you seen that Black Mirror episode? Which one? Which one? Uh, it's the one where the mother puts the chip in her daughter's head that controls what she can or can't see. And she like has this iPad that she enters in certain things oh that goodness. she doesn't want her daughter to experience. I've seen it. Oh, God, that sounds terrifying. I just really hope we never get there. That's all. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like we might be there already in Ugh. some ways. What do you mean? I read this article by a 14-year-old who wasn't allowed to use social media, I think, until quite recently, and came across her entire life having been documented by her parents from basically the moment she was born. And I think that's an experience that a lot of younger people have now, where the minute that, even before, the minute they, like, are birthed into the world, they're on Instagram. Wow. Some babies even have Instagram accounts. Like, it's a bit weird and yeah because babies are cute <laughs> and nobody thinks like babies have rights no they're just meant to be cute right? exactly and on instagram <laughs> <laughs> so we have fridge snitches and parent snitches and parent snitches too yeah Sometimes I feel like we dismiss those really like serious, creepy conversations as like dystopian, like this is like Black Mirror material mm-hmm. and all that. Uh, but at the same time, some of that, as you were just saying, right, some of that is already happening. Um, I, I wonder if we don't tend to overplay the importance of technology and all of this in the sense that like parents breaching like children privacy has happened in the past and like mm-hmm. people living in, under regimes or in states where they have no control over uh what they're about uh, control over their lives like period um is something that a lot of people have life experience with and sometimes in north america we don't necessarily think about that too much yeah about something that uh, it's already there or already existed it's a, it's like the same the same tools of oppression but they've evolved and they've morphed and they maybe aren't as visible as they once were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh or they're more sophisticated. Yeah. And that's something that I think about sometimes because well, I'm I'm of Haitian descent, so I'm born in Canada, but my family's from Haiti and uh my family like all other families 
fled the dictatorship back then that uh, killed a lot of people. Uh, there were a lot of human rights abuse, people being tortured. Um, so I spoke to one of the elders in the, the Haitian community in Montreal. His name is Franz Voltaire. He's the director of the CIDSCA, so that's a research center that focuses on the Caribbean, Haiti, and African-Canadian experience and history. Filmmaker, like, wears many hats, but he's lived in Chile. He was kicked out mm. when Pinochet took over in, in, in Chile. And he fled the dictatorship in Haiti as well. So he has amazing life experience. And we asked him, basically, what about surveillance then? And what about surveillance now? Here's what he had to say about that. This year will be the anniversary of uh, 1969, where they destroy all the leftist opposition in Haiti. And we know that <laughs> there was an informer at very high level, and he gave details of what is happening. But this was a very crude, if we compare with today, uh, that today what you need to, you need to control the people, you don't need necessarily to kill them because you have you, you can you have access to more information than you had at the time at the time for Duvalier the problem is anyone who is identified as an opponent can be killed because the the system defines itself as a system the president for life and so uh, there was no election there was no, uh, the president has an Ill, illimited mandate, and so what he wants is to control, by violent means, the opposition. Today, uh, what we are seeing is that with new technologies, uh, you need to control the people, to divide the people, to, to put them uh, some time to act on certain level that you can have control over them, but you don't need necessarily to kill them or to arrest them. He's so right. We don't need to kill people anymore for them to be controlled or to lose our freedom. You know, sometimes we're only worried about our liberties slipping away when we see violence. But with tech, we don't necessarily need violence to do this. And before, it used to be random violence, like to keep people scared. But now we can track people and this type of surveillance is so much more precise. It's like precision violence mm -hmm. so you know who your actual enemy is and you can target them with so much more accuracy right brenda also had comments about how some people are more surveilled than others so when police are are watching people uh we know it happens more to people racialized people we know that young black men are watched differently than young white men in the same neighborhood. We know that people who are either Muslim or who appear as though they might be Muslim 
get disproportionately watched out of fear of terrorism, despite the fact that it's actually far right yes. terrorists who have, you know, killed more people, done more damage than than Muslim terrorism in North America. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, so absolutely, um, privacy or surveillance is experienced differently by different groups and directed towards different groups differently. Wow. Black people and Muslim people are being surveilled more. <laughs> How surprising. Water is wet. Yeah, nothing new there. I mean, the demographic of people being surveilled shouldn't be shocking or surprising to many people, but the technology and the means by which it's happening certainly are new. Yeah, that's what's different now. Yeah, so some people are perhaps not wary of technology because they were not wary of surveillance even before technology, but some people are being targeted by it, definitely. Um, I had a really interesting conversation with Desmond Cole, um, who's an activist and a journalist based in Toronto. And he gave a very important example, I think, of how technology is impacting Black people, people of color in Toronto's public transit system. We just got a new, it's called Presto system in Toronto, where you tap your card instead of paying a token fare. And one of the spin-off uh, results of that technology is that it can track you everywhere you move on transit around the city. And we have learned that police can access this kind of information in some cases without a warrant. When your awareness for yourself is that when I go grocery shopping, the state might have the ability to follow me and watch where I go, that's very different from trying to ride transit and constantly being picked out by fare inspectors, for example, and being harassed and being told that you have done something wrong. Um, those two levels of um, impact on your life are dramatically different. Um, a person of color in the city of Toronto cannot expect to ride the TTC at this point without being either... Um, harassed by other riders, harassed by transit officials. There's just a different experience altogether. Poor people, and especially poor people of color, have been under constant surveillance by governments forever. The only real tangible difference now is that, first, it's happening a hell of a lot faster, and second, there's so much more information that can be stored digitally than in a file on someone's desk. So surveillance isn't a choice for poor, marginalized folks. Mm-hmm. Never has. You know, I recently read Automating Inequality, a pretty startling series of case studies by Virginia Eubanks. It's about how automation is impacting poor and marginalized communities across the U.S. She gives a pretty bleak example. In the state of Indiana, over the course of just three years, the state rejected one million applications for health care, food stamps, and cash benefits because a new computer system interpreted any application mistake or missing details as, quote, failure to cooperate. What? Yeah. Not sharing or failing to share all your private information means not having access to food or housing or health care. That's a pretty violent human rights abuse right there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is a really good example of digital tech used to make all sorts of pretty life-altering decisions. And this was about food stamp, but it's also about getting hired or getting fired. 
uh, deciding whether or not you're more likely to recommit a crime. Uh, think about how for accessing social benefits like welfare, you literally have to have your hand over all your personal data in exchange for just a little bit of support. Exactly. And when you refuse to hand over your data, you're, quote, failing to cooperate or essentially being reduced to a threat when you can't be tracked. So what about rich and privileged people? Good question. Brenda addressed that when she talked about privacy as a luxury. And there is a financial aspect to privacy. It's something that I'm increasingly concerned about, that sometimes the way to protect your privacy is to pay for a service, to pay for a premium subscription so you don't get ads tracked, to pay for... You know, to pay for a product instead of using a free one, uh, to pay extra mm-hmm. um, up front for a product that has better privacy protections because the companies who aren't trying to monetize your data have to charge more up front for the product. Yeah, so I pay for Spotify Premium because I don't want the ads. Mm. Actually, my mom pays for my Spotify because I have $3. Um, (laughs) There are ways to opt out of the targeted ads that are being directed towards people, but it's not just apps. Right. I think that wealth affords you a tremendous amount of privilege in this space in terms of simply considering the kind of phone you have, for example. like We know Apple tracks far fewer data points than Google phones do, for example, because Google as a network is working in sync with all of its other platforms, Google Mail, Calendar, um, the search engine itself, whereas Apple just wants you to have the product. Yeah, when it's, when it's done selling you the iPhone, it's done having its money. It doesn't care how much you use it. But I'm thinking of gated communities. I'm thinking of, you know, private jets. I'm mm. thinking of people uh, just like I think I think the, the privacy aspect is very much a part of like rich people culture in general. It's something that's <laughs> always been valued. Mm. Uh, people have always been more secret. Like, you know, that's also one of the ways to tell like the new the new rich from the old the old money, it's, right. it's, it's like the, the part of how people do not want to have their lives out there. Yeah. And they're, they're not flexing on Instagram with all the, the cars. And, no, yeah. exactly. Only like the only the new rich mm. people do that. But like, look at all cities across the world. Usually the more private neighborhoods are the wealthier neighborhoods as well. It's just right. built into the architecture of the, of the cities. Um, so in a way, now tech is just increasing that gap of marginalized people being watched and rich people being the what the watchers <laughs> yeah. right no if you think about what we've been uncovering it's the fact that um, low-income folks people on the margins are required to provide more data they're put in a situation where um, their data is taken in mind at a fur- to a further extent by big business and government entities right so the rich get richer and the people on the outside kind of have to just give all of their information in order to even get a crumb and the the way that rich people get richer is in part by taking your data and building ads and it's just like the people who are stating all who are starting all of these tech companies you know are not usually the marginalized folks exactly they're already rich what's that joke about how do you become a billionaire You have to be a millionaire first. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) 
In the beginning of the episode, we set out to make you care about digital tech and privacy, but maybe we've made you a bit scared. And that's absolutely not the point, though it is easy to feel scared about this stuff. The point is that we can't afford for this chilling effect to freeze us into inaction. One of the reasons we're scared is because we look at tech and we're not in control of it. So it's not necessarily about the tech itself. It's about the fact that we don't control the technology, right? And, but that's not necessarily the only way that technology can be built. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if we consider what technology that's built by the people and for the people looks like, and we start to consider the ways in which we might regain ownership over the means of production, I think there could be a completely different conversation around the ways in which technology is used as a force for good. Exactly. There are so many people doing some really interesting work around that question. What happens when things are designed with the user in mind and when the user controls it? For those of you who are listening who are in this world, who are in this space, uh, one of the ways to affect change can be to do those, you know, get in there and try to make technology more inclusive, try to make it uh, more ethical, more socially responsible. At the same time, in the conversation that we just had, we have hinted at some deep structural issues, how technology has been impacting our culture, our behavior. And even how we relate to each other, what we feel like we're able to say or do is impacted by the surveillance we're under. This can sound really overwhelming, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> um, when you're looking at things that are so deep, it can look like, well, there's no escaping that. Um, but systemic change is actually doable. The thing is, digital justice isn't that complicated. It's the same issues we've always faced, just with more tech. Increasing inequalities, freedom of expression, civil liberties, these are all social justice issues we've always cared about. So if we already care about social justice, digital justice is something we need to act upon now. Make sure to stay tuned to Rude for more information on what's already been happening in this space, as well as the ways you can become more involved in digital justice. send a special thank you to the Digital Justice Lab for the grant they gave us to make these two episodes possible. I also want to send a special shout out to SC Menace, the Menace of South Central, who made the music for these two podcasts. We also want to send a huge shout out to Kara Shepard-Jones and Nicole Lever, our research and writing team, for providing us with some serious support and background throughout these two episodes. My name's Michael. I'm Daniela. I'm Emily. And this is Rude.